sort of ironic because this series is really about hope and freedom. And uh, it's all about not being manipulated and, not, and getting rid of those fears that tie us up and control us. And I want us to look today at a passage of scripture that to me just explodes with real freedom and hope. One of my favorite passages, Philippians chapter 1. So if you've got a Bible, you can flip there. Philippians chapter 1. If you know anything about the book of Philippians, you know it's a book of joy, which again is ironic because Paul's in prison as he writes. He's writing to some people here who certainly understand they had seen Paul uh, actually suffer in Philippi. And you can go back if you're interested in that story and read it from Acts chapter 16. They tell about Paul and Silas being grabbed and hauled down to the marketplace and accused before the judges and stripped and beaten with rods and then thrown in jail and chains placed on him. But Paul talked about his suffering in 1 Thessalonians 2.2. He said, but after we'd already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. So this is a guy, when he's talking about going through hard times, he knows what he's talking about. And now he's in prison again in Rome. But he writes with such incredible confidence. And just to get a feel for his thinking a little and his attitude, I want us to go back and read some verses that we won't spend a whole lot of time on. But beginning in verse 12 of chapter 1, He says this, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. The greater progress of the gospel. Paul, what are you talking about? You're in prison. How can you say that your circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel? Well, he explains that as he goes on. He says, verse 13, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. This is how that imprisonment has been used for the progress of the gospel. He's like, everybody knows about it. It's, it's my imprisonment in the cause of Christ. It's not just, hey, I'm in prison and poor me. No, he sees a greater good here, a greater purpose. It's my imprisonment for the cause of Christ. And everybody's heard about it especially even the Praetorian Guard, the palace guard, the most elite soldiers in all of Rome. These are Caesar's bodyguards. These are the guys who sometimes, in fact, exerted control over Caesar, even removing Caesars and promoting Caesars. These guys were powerful, but they didn't intimidate the Apostle Paul. In fact, he impacted them with his imprisonment or his bonds or chains as it's sometimes translated, these chains that were normally a sign of Caesar's power. He had the power to put someone in them and keep someone there. Paul now flips this and said, hey, no, this is a sign of Christ's power. He's using this. So his imprisonment is impacting those who don't know Christ. And it's also impacting those who do. If you look at verse 14, that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. They're seeing what I'm going through and they're seeing how I'm going through it and they have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So Paul's looking at this whole thing, this whole situation, and he sees the advancement of the kingdom. And to Paul, that's, the, that's all that matters 
Everything else, it's okay. All the struggle, all the pain, all that he's going through, it's okay because there's a greater purpose than his struggles. That was, seemed to be always his outlook, didn't it? Well, what a great way to be able to face the things you go through in life. Maybe for us, what a, what a challenge and what an encouragement for us as we face our own struggles at times. Then down in verse 19, he says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. I, I know this will turn out my, for my deliverance. Paul, how do you know that? How do you know that you're going to get out of this somehow? Well, he goes on, verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you. So here he's saying, just to encapsulate that, he said, hey, this is how I know this is going to turn out for my deliverance. If I live, Christ is going to be exalted. And if I don't live, he's going to be exalted. If I live, great, it means Christ. For me to live is Christ. And if I die, it's gain. Either way, I win. And if I die, it's, it's gain. It's very much better. Boy, when you start looking at life that way, you know, whatever I go through in life, whatever struggle I'm facing, if, if I live and I do what I intend to do, it means Christ. I'm going to exalt him no matter what. And if I die, it's gain. It's very much better. Then there's not a whole lot in life that can shake you, is there? There's not a whole lot in life that can scare you. There's not a whole lot that can frighten you because it's all about him. And either way, we win. And then I want us to look at, these are the next verses I want us to focus on, really, and spend our time on. Verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I, am, I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So he uses this phrase in verse 28 there where he, that, that, I, that I want us to focus on, in no way alarmed by your opponents. No way alarmed by That means there's no moment, there's no instance, there's no person where we as believers in Jesus Christ ever need to be startled or shaken or scared. Do we get that? 
I mean, because it seems like so often Christians, we start hearing about things going on in the world around us, and it is sort of, sort of a mess of times, and we get all nervous about it, and we get all, all panicky about what this, Paul is saying is we never need to do that. In no way alarmed by your opponents. That's an amazing statement. When we start talking opponents, you know, we could talk about the bigger Christian picture. We all get that there's something going on in our world that, that is anti-Christian. Our opponents around the world. You know, in 2014, there was around 100 million Christians who faced persecution, direct persecution for simply practicing their faith. 100 million. 100 million of those who would say they are brothers and sisters in Christ suffering just because they are his. And the trends are growing. And, and we see it. We see it on the news, right? And we see Christians suffering because of their faith. But it's not just happening over there. It's also happening right here, right in our own country, where there's more and more ridicule of our faith from the media and from the population in general. People are actually uh, angry at the thought of Christianity. I read an article that was making the point that Christians in America need to recognize the fact that we are well into the first stages of persecution. Uh, We need to wake up to this. And the writer lines out the various stages. Let me just run through them. The first stage is where Christians are stereotyped. And we see that all the time, right? They're stereotyped in news media, in movies. There's this concerted effort to put us into a certain box. And that goes with the second stage where Christians are, 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 are vilified. And they're described as closed-minded and harmful to freedom and intolerant and hateful and bigoted and, and unfair and homophobic and reactionary and just plain mean, basically bad people. Stage three involves marginalizing Christians. So if, if we are people who are, are, are harmful to society at large, as so many people view us, then they want to marginalize it. All the incredible contributions that believers make are downplayed or scorned, and the church just becomes a place that is, that is a skeleton where the deluded come to practice their outdated rituals. That's how the world views us. Fourth stage involves criminalizing Christians and their churches and business and educational institutions. This is what's happened in other places. This, unless things change, is what's coming for us. Stage five involves persecuting Christians outright. That may involve forcing Christians to, to, to go against historic teachings. And, and then finally, the last stage of persecution where believers are actually having to give up their life. We see those stages beginning to happen today. See, what, what's, what, where we're at is the days of comfortable Christianity are over. Where we get to come and just sit in church and, and everything's okay. And we think we can go back out into the world and they're going to love us because we're such great people. That's over. 
And if it keeps heading the direction it's heading, and I realize God can turn us around, right? God's big enough. He can turn our culture around. He, he can do that in a moment if, if that's what he chooses. He can go that direction and hearts and lives could change and people could honor God again. But if it keeps going the direction it's heading, it may be that what it comes down to is where the point where we have to be willing to make known where we stand. And by doing that, it costs us everything. My question to us is, would we stand? So we got those types of opponents out there. And when we see that, you know what scripture tells us to do? Tells us, don't panic. You know, the world's a mess. And we may suffer. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? No. The scripture says to us here, we don't need to be intimidated by that. In no way alarmed by your opponents. Why? Because if we live, it's Christ. And if we die, it's gain. We win. We can't lose. Sometimes our opponents are more personal than what we're talking about. Sometimes they're they're people we work with. Sometimes it's our neighbors, even family members. You know, where we're just trying to live out our faith and, and they, they don't really like it. They don't want to hear about it. You know, they don't want to do us any harm or anything, but, but they don't want us to push our beliefs, as they would say, on them. And so sometimes they may ridicule our beliefs. They may resist us, sometimes even distance themselves from us. And still then, we are in no way to be alarmed by our opponents. Would we stand? Would I stand if it costs me everything? You know, the question, we, don't we sometimes ask ourselves that question? We look at things and we wonder, you know, we see something going on over in the Mideast and people giving up their lives and we want to know, would I, would I stand if it costs me that? Well, I think what Paul's doing here is he's given us some things as we look into this passage that we can hang on to. I'm just going to run through it. Things we can hang on to that we can do right now to prepare ourselves, to be ready. What if it costs me? Would I be ready? Well, there's some things he talks about here. First of all, he talks about conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Am I doing that right now? Living in a way that's worthy of the gospel. And How do we do that? Well, Paul was a Roman citizen. He's in Rome. He's writing to Roman citizens who were in a colony of Rome, they understood. It was very, they talked often about what it meant, the certain responsibilities they had as Roman citizens to conduct themselves in a certain way. What he's pointing out to them now is you're to conduct yourselves in a way because you are citizens of, of someplace else. You're citizens of heaven. And how does a citizen of heaven act? You know, that place you're longing to go to, that place is way better, very far better. As citizens of that place, how are you to act? What would I be doing differently if I was in heaven? Well, I think it would involve 
me t- maybe sometimes talking differently than I did. I wouldn't be grumbling and complaining sometimes. I wouldn't be expressing frustration and anger. No, what would come out of my mouth would be honoring to God. So I need to be right now living in a way that's worthy of the gospel. The, what comes out of my mouth should be something that's honoring to him. I'd be serving him and not my own sin and myself. So all that goes into serving God and praising him should be what I'm about right now. Live life like you're already there. Perform your duties as a citizen of heaven. Live life in a way that's worthy. And that word worthy had the idea of weight. So it's like there's a, a, a scale, and, and on one side is the gospel, and he's saying, conduct yourselves in a way that it's worthy. It weighs out. The way you're living your life weighs out with the gospel is even. Live your life in a way that brings honor to God, is consistent before him. Conduct yourselves in that manner that's worthy of the gospel. You've heard the phrase, act like you're somebody. Well, the somebody we all are, if you're, is a, if you're a believer, is a follower of Jesus Christ. Act that way. And then the second thing I see here is consistency. Standing firm, he says. Standing firm implies there's something to, for you that's trying to move you. So if we want to be ready in case someday we're facing some struggle or some Right now, what we need to be doing is living a consistent life, standing firm. If there's something that's trying to move you right now, something that's working against you, pressing against you, wanting you to move, to act differently than you should be acting. If it's an opponent, if it's something within you, you know, just a couple weeks ago, we talked about uh, that battle that goes on against sin that all of us have. Whatever it is, it's trying to move you away from from walking in a way that's worthy of the gospel. You have to tell yourself, I'm going to make the right decision. I'm going to stand against this. It's not going to move me. I'm going to brace myself for whatever it is that's trying to push me, and I'm going to fight back against it. Romans 6, verse 12 says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Do you hear the wording there? Do not let You've got a, the ability to say no to sin. You've got the ability to do what's right. Do not let sin reign in your moral body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. You, got, you have a choice to make. As a believer, you've been set free from sin. Paul says earlier in that chapter, you've been set free from sin, so you get the opportunity to choose and to say no to sin. Do that. Live consistently in in spite of what may be pressing against you, what may be pulling you away from living before him. Recent Gallup poll says 90% of Americans believe in God. 40% say they believe in God. 40% go to church But only 13% say it makes a difference in how they live. I'm going to tell you something. We don't want to be people who just come to church and walk out no different. We want what we do here and how we live our lives to be different to be consistent in in living a life that's honoring to him. Walk worthy and do it consistently. 
third thing is cooperate. It talks about, again, in verse 27, striving together. That we're working as a team. The good news is we don't have to do this alone. We get to do it together. So we got to learn to rely on and be relied on by other believers. And when we do it together, we get stronger, right? Ecclesiastes 4.12 says, If anyone can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. But a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. We, we need to be a cord of three strands, making us stronger than we could be alone. So we're relying on each other, working together, striving together. Again, the idea of striving tells us there's a, there's a struggle going on there. So, but we, so we got to do it together and be stronger by it. So the result of all that. So if we're going to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel and we're going to be consistent in living it out and we're going to cooperate, we're going to work together to do that, the result of all that is courage. In no way alarmed by your opponents. Courage is at the center of what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Boldness in the face of opposition is at the heart of being a Christian. It's not some upper level spirituality for super saints. It's the meat and potatoes of daily Christian living. Unified, standing together for the gospel and fearless before our opponents are the two ways that Paul says are the heart of living worthy of the gospel. Some people see here in this passage an allusion to the, to the gladiators. And the gladiators were condemned criminals. They were or prisoners of war or slaves that were bought specifically for the purpose of fighting as gladiators. And so they were bought, they were t- sent to gladiator school, and then they'd be trained in, in uh, combat techniques and, and weapons and, and armor. I'm not sure how good an idea it was to take your criminals and train them this stuff, but they did it. And they would spend three to five years. After three to five years, they had the opportunity to possibly win their freedom. The only problem was most of them didn't live that long because they'd start fighting. And uh, at some point um, in the fight, someone would get injured. And the people would, would recognize that that guy was injured. He's bleeding or whatever. And, and, they, and they get all excited and they start shouting, you know. It, it's, it's, it's like when I, if a guy could somehow, you know, mess up a punt or something, you know. And, you know <laughs> well, we know that would never happen, right? So, so the, the people are getting all excited about the fact that somebody's going to lose and somebody's going to win here. And the guy who's starting to lose can get to a point where he's realizing he doesn't have much of a chance. And so he had one opportunity. He could raise his left hand, stick one finger in the air, and that was his way of asking for mercy. Mercy, I need mercy. And then there would be a vote. You know how the vote went, Right? Thumbs up for life, thumbs down for death. If the vote was for death, the loser would grab the thigh of the winner, and the winner would take his sword and thrust it through the neck of the loser. 
what people see here is Paul saying, hey, when we are no long, no, in no way alarmed by our opponents, for us, it's a sign of life. You know what it says to us when we're able to, to look at, at, the, at, at, at our opponents and all that's going on, whether it's the big picture stuff in this world or, it said the, or the more personal stuff that's going on in our lives, we're able to say, hey, well, I, I'm not shaken by this. I'm not frightened by this. I'm trusting God in this. You know what it's saying? It's saying that's life. Good news. What I believe is true. What I believe has changed my life. It's, it's, it's changed my eternal destiny. It's changed the way I live. It's a sign of life. And for those who do not believe, it's a sign of destruction. Hopefully, so that they can see that they are without life. And they'll turn to him to gain life. The Christian gladiator doesn't sit back all nervous waiting for the signal, waiting for the vote. We know we've already won. And nothing will make an impact on our culture or on our coworkers and neighbors and family than when we can respond to the challenges of this life and the opponents that we face with confidence and faith and courage in the one we serve. That's our challenge, isn't it? It's also our life. As citizens of heaven who find ourselves in combat, will we live like it? Will we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? Will we do that consistently? Will we cooperate together to bring that about? And if we do, will that produce in us the courage so that we are in no way alarmed by our opponents? Because for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. We win. And just like the Apostle Paul was able to impact his culture around him, both of unbelievers and believers, we can impact the culture around us. We don't have to panic. We don't have to fear. It doesn't matter what we see in the news. It doesn't matter, in a sense, what's going on in this world. It doesn't matter what we personally are facing if we trust God and present to this world the image of people who are confident in the one we serve. We can be used to change the world. We win. We win. For us to live as Christ and to die as gain. Can't possibly lose. Will you stand and pray? Father in heaven, we thank you for loving us. Unworthy, unable to do anything on our own, but God, you take us, you make us new, and you love us. 